So anyway, I'm going to DM the mighty Joe Hagen. I have no idea why I'm calling him that. Hope he doesn't hate it, but it just feels true. His first tweet, and we're going to get into it. Strap in, because here we go. People don't say, up your nose with a rubber hose, <laughs> as much as they used to. It's funny that you picked that out, because it's one of the truly like spontaneous things that I just went, bonk. It popped into my head. I chuckled. I typed. I tweeted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny. It wasn't until I tweeted it that I even remembered that it was from Welcome Back, Cotter. And uh, I was surprised. You know, you put all this stuff about, like, I have very strong opinions about Donald Trump. <laughs> You know what I mean? And then you put up your nose with a rubber hose out there, and people go hog wild. They're like, yeah. It's really kind of touching. You know, nostalgia is operating differently for us because we were analog pre-internet. This subject has been on my mind a lot this summer. I've been tweeting about it a lot. I had a my own podcast about Generation X, as you know, because I was having that experience this weekend in a kind of epic way at my inevitable arrival at the pavement show. There were four of them in Brooklyn this weekend. They were really like a homecoming. They were some kind of like weird high school reunion. Like I I knew I would see people that I (laughs) I knew and I hadn't seen in years, and I did. Everybody that I was with felt super emotional about it. And, And just to put a fine point on it, you know, as Gen Xers, we always sort of were like, you know, gag me with a spoon about boomer nostalgia because they just shoved it down mm-hmm. our throat. We are so not ever going to do that. You know, fuck that kind of like nostalgic corporate garbage. Yep. Here I was this weekend kind of eking out a little bit of it, and it did feel good. But of course, we're not making everybody swallow it. It was just our own little private affair. One of the things is, is their lyrics, <laughs> you know, are a little bit undigestible to the outside world on purpose. It was a little bit like pavement were a reaction against selling out against corporate stuff and trying to recarve out an authentic rock and roll for the next generation to, that they could get behind. You know, when they broke up, it was 99, late 90s. And I actually wrote a big piece about it in the New York Times. It was maybe the first or second thing I ever published of that magnitude. Ooh. As we were growing up, you know, the band broke up. We moved on into our careers and our lives big events like 9-11 happened. And I remember for like, I will say, and this is a bit of a confession, is that for 20 years, I couldn't even listen to Pavement. I couldn't listen to any of that music. I didn't like even looking back on that time. You know, it began to feel decadent and self-involved and like we weren't getting it. I couldn't see what was good about the time that we grew up because we had to adapt to a new reality, a digital reality. As Pat Oswalt said, the sort of 24-7 grind mentality of our digital culture, which yep. it's only recently, and I'm talking about this summer and maybe this year, that I've started to look back on that time with a real fondness and seen the virtue of it. God, you remember in 1992, 93, 94, that period? Right. I was just coming out of college and into the world and everything was fresh and great. If you got four or five people together in a bar to hang out and talk, absolutely nobody talked about politics. It was not dominating. And in the last few years, it's like flipped completely where like politics is like where everybody ends up. A very violent game of capture the flag. Yes, exactly. And then everybody goes into a group lament about whatever terrible thing they think is happening in the world. And, you know, I don't really want to spend my life that way. (laughs) Right. And I was reading your tweets, which are so like uh, incisive and funny. You know, you were saying, you know, Gen X hearts were made for the apocalypse. And that's just exactly it. We do remember what those analog times were like. We do know what their what their virtues were like. And in a way, we've carried forward with that 
some perspective. And, you know, we should all bring back up your nose with a rubber hose as like your... (laughs) This is your kind of like go-to attack line when you can't get any further with some incalcitrant Trumper or something. You know what I mean? Just like up your nose with a rubber hose and, you know, sayonara. I never felt so alienated from my own country as I do today. It's June 27th, it looks like. I was born here in 1971, lived all the history, lived all over the country, felt I knew the place in my bones, good, bad, and ugly, took America's story personally. But who are these people? What is this place? You sound like a Gen X Studs Turkle there. <laughs> and I mean that in the most complimentary fashion. Sure. I love Studs Turkle. Well, me too. You know? Yeah, I love him too. Yeah. Yeah. Working is one of my favorite books. This was, uh, no, it was a Barack Obama and Mitt Romney election, 2012. So this is long, seven years ago. So, And a friend and I, a great photographer named Tim Davis, who's a friend of mine, and uh, we were talking about, you know, I'm so tired of looking at America through the prism of politics. It's so boring. Yeah. It's so, you know, binary and never goes any, it goes the same place again and again and again. And we were like, how can we tell what's actually going on in this country and what it looks and feels like? What's the f- texture of it, you know? Yeah. And I said, well, why don't we do this thing where we go out in America in the old-fashioned Walker Evans, James the G kind of way and I'll interview people, and you take their portraits, and we'll do a thing. Cool. So we did a bunch, and they, they we really liked how they came out. We were interviewing some Jamaican guys that ran a junkyard up, you know, near Hudson. We interviewed, you know, a, a, a gay couple in Kingston who were living in a kind of rough neighborhood, but they had bought this house. So everywhere we went, we were getting wild stories, and we thought, well, there's a lot. This is rich. To be able to do what Studs Terkel did, which is just interview anybody you know, about their lives. And, you know, we would sort of circle around the idea of the American dream. Like, what is it? Do you feel like the, there's potential in this country? Do you feel like it's potential in your life? Does America even exist anymore? Yeah, yeah. What is it? Yeah. Does, do you, and we're talking about seven years ago. So this is before it was even more horrible than it, as horrible as it is now. So anyway, it was fascinating and wonderful and emotional. That sounds like a good place to be, sincerely. It was sincerely an amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, really wonderful, and I'm so happy we did it, and we have a ton of it sitting in an archive. But um, cool. right around that time, that, what's it called, like Faces of New York, or what's the guy's name? You know, uh, Humans of New York. Yeah. He came out with a big book, and we realized that, oh, we're always going to look like we were doing some kind of like, you know, follow up. So we kind of put it on ice. Uh, but yeah, it did uh, just as a experience and an impact on me and my view of the country. It changed me. And um, yeah. and I'm sure Studs Terkel was deeply changed by his interface with all these people. Just to go back to this tweet. Now you got me thinking. This goes back to what we've been talking about. I guess I must have been thinking about it this summer. When I got into writing, probably like 17 or 18, it was in high school, and I made it my mission when I graduated from college, like whatever kind of writer I'm going to be, whether it's a poet, a fiction writer, or whatever, it's going to be at its heart about America. Not in a nationalistic, I don't gross take it that way. way. No, now it all just seems naive, but like I just had this literary 
vision of America as a potentiality and that I could, and my place in it could be, I could explore it and the world beyond. But you know that feeling when you first moved to New York and you're a rube and everything, but, and you're just seeing the plurality for the first time and you're on the streets yeah, and how magical that is, like how intense and wonderful. And you just get plugged into this idea yeah, that is like, wow, this is the crossroads of the world. This is what the country could be about, you know, the scrum of life and everybody's involved. And now it's not perfect, obviously, and there's a lot of problems, but the idealism that it can engender. Right, right. You know, it's, there's the cynicism of New York, which everybody uh, romanticizes. I'll give you a, a, a moment, okay? It was after 9-11, and there was a club in Williamsburg, and it, um, I'm going to forget the name of it, but, and there was a variety show going on. Right. People were doing, you know, there was like people doing hula hoops and it was like, you know, comedians and all kinds of stuff. Right. And then an old, older woman, probably in her 70s, and who had a Brooklyn accent, you know, the real deal. And she had a glittery United States of America sweatshirt on, <laughs> kind of crazy looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she got up and she sang New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. And let me just tell you, everybody in that place was crying. Yeah. That's a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when you have hope from, you know, from the jaws of defeat kind of thing. You know, when you feel that that spiritual kinship that you can have around a city, around a country, around a thing, that's not connected to hate and, like, nationalism and muscular bullshit <laughs> and, like, fake flag-waving, you know, bumper sticker bullshit by fucking morons. Yeah. Actual America, what it could be when it was good. That was the spiritual literary tradition that I came out of when I was interested in people like Studs Terkel. More Twitterverse after the break. Twitterverse. I'm going to DM another tweet. Gotta say, the death of boredom in the digital age is probably the biggest loss for Gen X, having lived in both the analog and digital worlds. We're feeling it especially acutely now as parents of children who don't know anything about boredom because the internet. What are some times in your life where you were bored that you can recall it was to your advantage? Well, every summer of my teenage life. So when I had a car later when I was 16 or 17, then I could drive to the beach or drive wherever. But yeah. my teenagehood was spent like, okay, I'll see you later. You'd go out and you'd find things to do. You would go to a construction site and ride around with your friend. We used to go around, this is when we we're about nine or 10 years old. We'd go around in parking lots and we'd walk around looking for Cadillacs. And the Cadillac cars in the 70s had... Um, chrome caps on the air valves yeah and we would go around and steal them and just fill shoe boxes with little chrome caps off the wheels of i'm not saying that this is like some kind of <laughs> elevated thing that we were doing but it did get us out of the house and got us into right. all these misadventures and it was just one of the many things we were doing and harmless ultimately harmless I mean... yeah no we would shine them and we would count them out and trade them and stuff and it was a stupid thing but in addition to all that 
it just led to lots of reading. I mean, I remember reading just entire series in like three days because you just had nothing better to do. Or, you, know. you, you really did have to more marinate in your own mind more. You did. There was a, a cumulative effect on your sense of time and on your creativity. Other aspect of the analog world was the sense of isolation was absolute. I mean, you really didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world. There was no way to know. There was no way to even have a an inkling of what was happening elsewhere and what people were thinking and doing. Later on, we found out that we were all thinking and doing somewhat similar things, which was a bit of a revelation to me and has been ever since, I will say, when I meet somebody like you who, oh, you too, always felt super isolated. And this gets back to people talking about heaviness of like record albums and how you would just like, you don't know anything about these artists except for what's on these records. You're looking at the back of it and is all the information you have. This profile of Janine Garofalo, which doubles as an essay on Gen X and the legacy of the 1990s, is so good. Thanks, Jason Zinneman. And I said, I feel seen after reading this. And it really, God, I thought that profile was good. I was so jealous that I didn't write it. So that's a feeling you have when you're a writer sometimes. That's the highest compliment you can give someone. Highest one, yeah. I just was like, man... I mean, she's somebody that just was around in the East Village when I was coming up in the city. She was the real deal. And when I read that profile, it says she doesn't have a phone. She's not on Twitter. She's not on the internet basically at all. She just kept the Gen X thing alive well past its expiration date. Right. It's to where it becomes almost like an eccentricity. I mean, it, it is an eccentricity. It's like, whoa. You're living in the city, but you're off grid, <laughs> you know, Yeah. throughout the years of the internet age. I've, I've periodically fantasized, and people have done this as like a experiment in journalism. Like, I'm going to go off grid for a month and never check my internet and see what that's like, you know. Of course, it's fantastic. But then you get curious for a second to see how many tweets you got. <laughs> and then you go falling back down the rabbit hole. The next thing you know, you're a crackhead. It also alleviates some loneliness, I think. You know, we were talking about the value of boredom, and I completely concur. Yeah. It would have been nice to have, like, 17% less boredom and more community somehow, some way. Yeah, well, I agree with that. And by the way, because you said about loneliness, I had moved to New York, and I knew not a soul. I came to New York with like a backpack and a guitar. You went full Bob Dylan. I went full Bob Dylan. I mean, I did have an internship at Rolling Stone. I mean, that's why I came. Uh, somebody I knew down in North Carolina said, well, you should look up my ex-boyfriend. He works at Second Coming Records in the village. And I met the guy that would basically become my Virgil, taking me into the lower depths of New York world. And he took me to the clubs. He took me to weird people's houses who were making avant-garde movies and just crazy stuff that I'd never been exposed to. Can you remember like one night that really stood out to you as like seminal or just an experience where it like moved you or stuck with you all these years? Here's the thing is when I first moved to New York, as some young person does, you don't know how to say no or what to say no and yes to, <laughs> right? <laughs> Moving out to Williamsburg, I needed to move out there because my sublet had let out elsewhere. And I, there was a place called the L Cafe in Williamsburg. There was a, a bulletin board, and I found a phone number, a person looking for a roommate. They lived on, in South Williamsburg. I didn't know what I was doing, so I walked down there <laughs> to meet this girl. And I'm like, wow, can I live here? 
is this a place that I should be living? Is this, do these people want me to live here? It doesn't right. feel like it to me. And so <laughs> anyway, I went to meet her and she was an eccentric person, but I was desperate. So I said, okay, I'll, st- I'll live here, you know. I was coming home from work like maybe two days after I'd moved in. I had nothing to move in. It wow. was, I still had the backpack and guitar and that was it. I walked by a, a pool hall and a teenage kid comes out and he has like a fake gun in his hand and he po- points it at my head and he goes, bang, 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 really loud. <laughs> okay. And he just was fucking with me and all these other kids laugh. And I instantly am just petrified. So I go back to the gal's apartment and where I'm now living. And I said, oh, I don't know if I can live here, man. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm freaked out. And she goes, oh yeah. Oh, by the by, I had another roommate here before who got so harassed that he started carrying a gun and he slept with it under his pillow. And when he was harassed one day, pulled it out and aimed it at these teenage kids on the street. And they, oh. all, and they all threatened to kill him. And then he had to move out and I'm the replacement. That's what I found out. <laughs> That, okay, that's what I found out in that instant. I'm just sitting there in shock. I produced a record. After five years of adventure and work, it just arrived in the mail, hot off the presses. Oh, what a feeling. Earl McGrath was somebody I interviewed for my book, Sticky Fingers. He was kind of an unusual character in that everybody talked about him, but I'd never heard of him, and nor had most people, because he was a behind-the-scenes tastemaker. He was a connector and a social influencer, an alchemist in a way, you know, social alchemist. When he died, I was invited by his estate to his apartment on West 57th Street to look at photographs. While I was in his apartment, I discovered like hundreds of analog reel-to-reel tapes in his closet. Wow. And I ended up acquiring them from the estate and spending four years sifting through them, curating them, and turning them into a double album called Earl's Closet. And one of my dreams with this whole thing was like, it is an album full of wonderful music that I love, but it's also kind of an excuse to write like a New Yorker-sized story and publish it between two slabs of vinyl, right? So to me, that was like, what's your fantasy, Joe? Oh, my fantasy is to write a gigantic um, long-form story and have records attached to it, since I love records. Yeah, no, it's really something. Listen, let's be friends, all right? I think I think we just became friends. All right, that's it. We became friends right here. Boom. Well, thank you for having me on. It means a lot. <laughs> <laughs>